All right, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to uh, finish chapter 14. We stopped at verse 13. We're going to do 14 through the end of the chapter, and then we're going to do chapter 15, which is a, a really short chapter um, in comparison to the rest of the chapters we've been covering. So we're going to cover that territory, and I'm going to warn you, this, this morning is, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's, let's just say it's not uplifting, okay? Um, we're going to talk about reaping and, you know, um, blood flowing and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's not going to, you know, enjoy your breakfast, um, but <laughs> there's no way I can get around it. This is, this is a tough morning in terms of the topic. But before we get into that, I want to kind of remind you of what we talked about last week. We uh, covered the first 13 verses of chapter 14, and John gets this uh, preview. God, God allows him to see into the future. He, everything he's seen is in the future, right? He's living in the first century, and he's seeing to, to the end of time. But now he's getting a fast forward to see the end of the end of time. Because what we saw last week is he sees the Lamb, Jesus Christ, standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 redeemed Jews who've, been, who've come to Christ during the tribulation period. It's at the end of the tribulation, obviously, because that's when Jesus Christ comes back, his second coming. So he gets this vision of the end. And I think it's, it was meant by God to, to remind him that there is an end to this story. This all wraps up. Don't worry. Don't fret. God has a plan, and it, he gets to see Jesus having literally come back to earth. Now, if this book was written by the Apostle John, which I believe it was, that's, that probably resonated pretty importantly with him because he got to see him leave. Remember, he physically got to see him ascend back up into heaven after Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resur resurrection. Now he's getting a vision of him coming back, just as Jesus Christ told the apostles he would. He's back on earth, and what that means is the final judgment is coming, and we're going to see that in the last verses of chapter 14, part of what that's going to look like. We also uh, didn't get to hear it, but he got to hear the, the song that was being sung, and the 144,000 heard it. It was sung in heaven. They hear it, and it's a song only they could hear. That was followed by the angel flying through mid-heaven. He was flying around the earth. And he's proclaiming the eternal gospel. Eternal in the sense that it's everlasting, always has been, always will be. It's a gospel because it is good news, but all good news has the corresponding bad news. What's the bad news? Well, it's everlasting too. And that's part of what we're going to see when judgment comes to the earth. The final judgment is it has eternal consequences. If you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, the eternal consequences are great. If you don't accept him, they're not so great. They're really bad, as we'll see. There's a second angel following the first angel, and he's proclaiming the fall of Babylon. Babylon is the city, I believe a literal city, that will exist. I believe it's probably going to be a rebuilt city of Babylon because the significance of Babylon to Israel and to that part of the world. But irregardless, it's going to be a city that is the headquarters of Antichrist, and it will fall, and it will be destroyed by Jesus Christ. Then there's a third angel he saw flying through heaven. And this third angel proclaims the fate of all of those who have um, sold out to Antichrist. They've taken the mark of the beast. They've decided to um, align themselves with him. And by doing that, not just worshiping him, but worshiping by extension, Satan. 
and there's a fate for them, and it's not a good fate. And the inference seems to be that those individuals, anybody who's taken the mark of the beast, have no hope of ever being redeemed. They've, they've kind of uh, bought their ticket, and they will never hear the eternal gospel. They will never listen to the 144,000 Jews, and their fate is already sealed. Okay, so all of these things we looked at last week, and it all has to do with the final judgment. There is a final judgment coming, and we need to think about that. We need to realize that. And there is a reaping that John is going to hear about and get a vision of in verses 14 through the end of chapter 14. And it's this idea of God finalizing this judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but the longer I live in this planet, I'm ready for some final judgment to come. All right, and I want to make the list of who it comes to. Um, well, guess what? It is coming, and I don't get to make the list. God does. But I can trust that God knows who needs to be on that list, and he knows what their fate needs to be. And we'll talk a, more, a little bit more about that in a second. But let's look at these verses in chapter 14. It says, Then I looked, this is John, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And you think about the sickle, think of the Grim Reaper. You know, it's that tool that has long wooden tool and a couple of handles on it. It's got this sharp blade at the bottom and you, you reaped with it, okay? That's what it's talking about. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. He says, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat in the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, everywhere um, you see reaping in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, for the most part, it's always positive. It's a good thing to reap, right? Because you reap in order to harvest. You harvest in order to get what you need to subsist, to, to live. It's a good thing to harvest grapes, to harvest wheat, harvest wheat. This is not a good reaping, Okay. You don't want to be a part of this reaping. You don't want to be here. You don't want to be part of it. And we'll see why. This is everything about this portion of the book, of this chapter in particular, is negative. Okay, that's why I started out the way I did. It's really hard to spin this in a positive way. It's negative. It's a reaping you don't want to be a part of. And it's a reaping that will be done by someone called the Son of Man. Well, who is the Son of Man? This is the favorite designation of Jesus of himself in the New Testament, in the Gospels. He almost always referred to himself as the Son of Man. Why? Because it speaks of his humanity. He took on human flesh. He's God incarnate, God in the flesh, God as a human. He was born as a baby, grew up to be a man. And all of that's important because if he did not become a man, he could not be the sacrifice that was necessary to satisfy the just demands of a holy God. A man had to die on behalf of men. And if Jesus Christ didn't take on human flesh, guess what? I couldn't die for you because I'm not unblemished. I'm not sinless. You couldn't die for me. You couldn't die for yourself. I couldn't die for myself. Jesus Christ had to come and be the sinless sacrifice so his humanity is huge. There's also a reference in these verses that he's wearing a crown that's pretty significant. This is Jesus Christ, and it's his sacrifice of his life that makes him 
the appropriate one to judge all those who deserve judging. Now, why? Because they've all rejected him. He gave his life. He sacrificed himself for my sins, your sins. He died in my place and in your place. And there are those who've rejected that death. I don't want that death. I don't want your sacrifice. I don't want you to take on my sins. And so he will now judge them. That's what John is seeing in this last portion of chapter 14. If you remember back in chapter 5, when John gets a vision, he's literally, he's somehow taken into heaven and he stands before God in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, he gets to see Jesus Christ. And here's what it says. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So when he looks into heaven in chapter 5, he sees God holding a scroll in his hand with seven seals. We've already looked at those seven seals. But a question is asked, who's worthy to open the seals? Who's worthy to open the scroll? And nobody steps forward. Remember, John starts to cry and then... One of the elders goes, what are you crying about? There is somebody worthy, and it's this individual. It's the lamb who was slain. It's Jesus Christ. See, what we know is that he he was worthy to open the seals because he's the one who died. He's the one who did what was necessary to redeem mankind. It made him worthy. It made him the one, the only one who could open the seals and bring about judgment. What we're seeing in these verses at the end of chapter 14 is he will culminate the judgment. He will be the one who's worthy, not only to open the seals, and if you remember, every time he opened one of those seals, judgment came, some form of judgment. And now we're seeing the blast of the seventh trumpet and the final judgments are gonna be unrolled, unfolded, as we'll see in chapter 15. He has the right to judge. And so what we're going to see in these verses is Jesus Christ reaping. He's reaping humanity. And it isn't a pretty picture. Okay, it goes on. It says, another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle, reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So an angel comes out of heaven from the presence of God, speaks to the Son of Man and says, get going, get busy. Now there's some commentators who really struggle with, why is an angel having to mediate between God the Father and God the Son? Why didn't God just speak directly to God the Son? I don't think we have to make a whole lot out of this. I think it's a picture of God sending his messenger, an angel, to tell the Son of Man who's standing on earth, go for it. It's time. It's time to reap. The hour to reap has come. This is all talking about the end of the tribulation, that seven-year period of time we've been talking about now for, what, 15 weeks. It's time. He's back. He's going to reap. And this picture of reaping is pretty important because it ties into this idea of that, that old phrase, you reap what you sow, right? If, if you were a parent, a father, I guarantee you've said this to one of your kids in some form or fashion, you reap what you sow. You want to do that? Fine, but you'll regret it. 
And now we're seeing on earth the reality of this statement coming true. The people that are about to be reaped are people who have sown and sown and sown, and now they're going to be reaped. They're going to get exactly what they deserve. The world has sowed in sin, sowed sin in the form of rebellion against God, and they're still doing it. Now, it's amazing to me, just when I think this world can't get any more screwed up, I, I look at the news. And then I ask myself, why do you look at the news? Why do, why do you bother? You know, just this week, guys, I, I am, I'm literally amazed. I shouldn't be amazed, but I'm literally amazed that we've got a governor in New York who has signed into legislation with glee and joy and much applause the death of babies at the point of birth. Legislating it into law, and everybody celebrates. We've got a legislator in Virginia who is trying to get a bill passed in Virginia that she literally was interviewed and asked, if at the point when the mother is giving birth and the, she's dilated and the baby is about to come out, is she free to kill this child? Well, yes, with some help from the doctor. It's just between she and the doctor. And then the governor of Virginia was later asked if that baby is born, literally comes out of the womb, born, is it still the right of the mother to take the life of that child? And he said, well, yes. That's between she and her doctor. Guys, how much worse can this get? A lot worse. And, and I, I'm not here to make a political statement. I'm not here to say anything about you know, Cuomo or any of these individuals, but I do want you to pray for these people because they are deceived. The spirit of the Antichrist is all around us, and they truly believe the words that are coming out of their mouth, but they are highly deceived and deluded about what they think they know and what they think is right. And here's what I know. There is a day coming when they will reap what they have sown. They will be judged, and they will be judged severely. And here is, it's time. Jesus Christ, we're looking into the end times and John is seeing this vision of Jesus Christ reaping those who have sown the wrong thing for way too long. It's time to reap. There's a lot of verses in the scriptures. I'm just going to reveal three of them to you that have to do with this idea of reaping and the end times and what God's going to do. Hosea 8, 7, they sow the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. Governor Cuomo is going to reap the whirlwind one day. This week, probably not. Next year, probably not. Is he getting ready to run for president? Probably so. Could he get elected? Most definitely. Will we regret that? I think so. But will he reap the whirlwind? Yes, that day is coming. Because God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. See, it doesn't matter who this individual is. It doesn't matter if he's a Republican. It doesn't matter if he's a Democrat. It doesn't matter if he's white, black, yellow, green. It doesn't matter. If they sow iniquity, they will reap the results of that. Because on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven 
in heaven, those who have aligned themselves. We've already seen this take place when Satan was cast out of heaven along with all those angels who followed him and the kings of the earth on the earth. Chapter 15 will show us what that looks like. There is a reaping that is coming, guys, and it is severe. And if you get nothing out of this morning, get this. God hates sin. He loathes sin. And, and here's the problem. You and I don't. We, we say we do. We say we, do, we don't like sin, but we, we love to get in bed with sin. We love to embrace sin. And some of us aren't bothered by what we see happening all around us, some of the decisions being made by politicians and others. We don't seem to care. God cares. And God will one day reap the harvest, and he'll do it through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that, that you've got Jesus Christ pictured here at the end of the age, getting ready to reap the harvest. And then, then there's the Jesus Christ who spoke to his disciples about a different kind of harvest. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter nine. When he saw the crowds, Jesus sees the crowds and most of them were Jews. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. This is a good harvest. This is the harvest you and I should care about. And guess what? When he spoke this to his disciples, he spoke it to you. This is your reason for being on this planet, is to reap the harvest of all those who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Wherever they live, whatever country they live in, whatever neighborhood they live in, whatever color of their skin, you share the gospel in order that you might reap the harvest along with God of these people who need to hear the truth. And as I told you last week, I may or may not have convinced you that there is a rapture, okay? And I'm okay with that. I believe there's a rapture. So let's just say there is a rapture. And before I finish the next statement, Jesus Christ come back, comes back and we all go to be with him. Well, I'm going to be happy because I was right. Um, some of you will be disappointed only that you were wrong, but you'll be happy that you get to go. But let's just say it happens and we all go. And there's four or five of you still sitting here. But we all go. What starts right after that? The tribulation. It starts immediately. So the four or five guys that are still sitting here and then many, many people, millions upon millions of billions of people sitting on this planet who don't go, guess what? They go into the tribulation. They live through the next seven years. And what do we know? Many of them are going to die. Many of them are going to align themselves with Antichrist. And so this is why this harvest is so important. We live at a time when we should be harvesting all those people who need to hear the truth. Because there's a second harvest coming. And it's what we're talking about in chapter 14. And it describes the people living at that point in time as fully ripe. That to me sounds really good, right? That sounds, you want fully ripe fruit. Nothing worse than unripe fruit. Nothing worse than an, you know, an apple that's picked before it should be picked. But this, this is not a good term, fully ripe. Here's what it means in the Greek. They're withered. They're withered. They're dried up. It really seems to be talking less about fruit than it is talking about like wheat and barley and those kinds of crops that literally are just dried up and they're worthless. You've seen corn that looks like that. That's just 
It's on the stalk, but it's like shriveled up and it's totally worthless. You wouldn't even feed it to livestock. That's the picture here. And it describes the inhabitants of the earth. And I think in particular, it's describing all those who have taken the mark of the beast. And he's describing them as totally withered on the vine. You're useless. You've lost any value, any redeeming value. In other words, you're unredeemable. That ought to scare the bejeebers out of you. The idea that anybody could be unredeemable. But there's a day coming when they will be. And that's why Jesus Christ is told by God the Father to take his sickle and reap because they have become, become unredeemable. And Jesus told his disciples this day was coming. He talks about it in Matthew chapter 13. He says, the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. There is a day coming when the unredeemed, the unredeemable will be what? Judged. They'll be reaped, but they won't be reaped and used for good. They'll be, as it's described here, burned up. See, this is, this is serious stuff. This is not a pretty picture to look at, but it's a picture we need to see. And why in the world is God showing this to us? Why did he show it to John, who then is now showing it to us, so that we would understand that sin is serious and God is a serious judge who takes sin seriously and he's going to do something about it someday. And we can laugh about it, we can ignore it, we can act like it doesn't exist, we can get angry about people who make decisions like we're seeing made, but guys, they will be judged and they will suffer for it. Because it goes on and says, he who sat on the clouds swung a sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out from the temple, God's presence, and he too had a sharp sickle. You're like, another one? Isn't Jesus enough? Well, there's something else going on here because it says this other angel came out from the altar. The angel has authority over the fire. Fire is always a symbol of judgment. And he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, the second angel. And he says to him, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. What's going on here? I think this is a, a direct judgment upon any of the Jews who have taken the mark of the beast. There will be Jews living during the tribulation who decide, you know what? I'm taking the mark of the beast because I want to buy and I want to sell and I don't want to be persecuted. So I'm going to, I'm going to sell out. Every time in the old Testament, you see this picture of the vine. It's almost always a, an image having to do with Israel. They're the vine. God's the vine dresser. God planted them in the land of Canaan in order that they might bear fruit for him. But now you see, no, these people have not borne the right kind of fruit because he's told to harvest them because they're ripe. Again, sounds like a wonderful thing. And this is a different word than the one we saw earlier. It's a word that means they're fully ripe. Hey, that sounds great. They're so ripe, they're about to explode. It's like grapes that are about to burst out of their skin because they got so much juice in them. But see, all of this is negative. What's about to burst out is their sin. Their wickedness is so great that they're about to burst. And isn't that kind of what we see today? 
some of the decisions being made, some of the, the, the lifestyle changes that we see happening around us that people are buying into and they're defending, it's, it's wickedness bursting. Well, it's going to be even worse at the end of the age. And so these people are going to be reaped because the harvest can no longer delay. So I think you see Jesus reaping the nations, all those who have taken the mark of the beast, and this other angel is reaping the harvest of all those Jews who have sold out to the Antichrist. And they're being reaped. So he swings his sickle across the earth. He gathered the great harvest of the earth. He threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. That's not a place you want to go. I don't know what it looks like, but you don't want to go to the great wine press of God's wine press of God's wrath. It's not like a kegger, you know. It's not, hey man, this sounds great. No, you don't want to be there. You don't want to go there. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for sixteen hundred stadia. That's hundred and eighty square miles. Now, a lot of commentators look at this and go, "This is this is totally ridiculous." Blood, 180 square miles up to a horse's bridle. That's a lot of blood. That's a lake. That's a sea of blood. Is it literal? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think it's going to be blood up to a horse's bridle 180 miles square. What it's a, referring to is it will be a great deal of blood over a great area. And it ties into a great number of deaths. See, blood's going to flow. And what we know is that there's a battle that's going to take place called the Battle of Armageddon. That's one of the things we, there's two things we know about the book of Revelation, 666 and Armageddon. Now, we don't know much beyond that, but we know those two things. What is it? I don't know. It's a battle. Who wins? I think Jesus. What's 666? I don't know. It's a mark. What's it mean? I don't know. I just don't want it. But see, there's a battle and it's a major battle and it's going to be between the kingdoms of the world led by Antichrist under the power of Satan against Jesus Christ. That's the battle of Armageddon, if you want to boil it all down. And here's a picture of him in chapter 19. I saw the beast, Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army, Jesus Christ. Here's a cool deal. We get to come back. Okay, we get raptured, we get to come back and we're part of that army. And all you guys who are into that, you know, you're like, man, that is going to be so cool. I get to fight with Jesus. No, you don't. We're going to sit there and watch him fight. And that's going to frustrate you. But guess what? He doesn't need your help. And he goes on and tells us, the beast was captured, Antichrist, with the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, Jesus Christ. He's going to slay them. He's going to kill them to the degree that all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, this is going to take place in the valley of Megiddo. That's where we get Armageddon. And it's a literal valley. If you go to Israel, you can stand on a mountaintop and look over this valley. And it is a huge flat plain that they have estimated that millions and millions of troops could fight in. And here's what's really amazing is a lot of people spend a lot of time worrying about, well, there's going to be tanks and there's going to be rockets and there's going to be planes and there's going to be, you know, anti-aircraft aircraft gun. There's going to be all this, you know, well-armed armies. And what's God going to do? Or Jesus going to do? He's going to speak 
and destroy them. I don't think there's a literal sword that comes out of his mouth. It's speaking of his word, his authority as God, the son of God, and he's gonna destroy all those armies. And it's gonna be major bloodshed. That's how the story ends, which leads us into chapter 15, because guess what? He's had this fast forward, he's seeing the end of the story, but yet we've got the rest of the chapters to look at. And chapter 15 is going to be kind of a stepping back in time for John. He's seen the end. Jesus Christ is back. He's going to judge. He's going to reap. But let's bring it back some. Because we've got chapter 16, 17, 18, 19, all the way through to the end. So in chapter 15, he sees another sign in heaven. Great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues. This is the third of th three great signs. The first one was the woman, Israel. The second was the dragon, Satan. Now we get to see these seven angels and it's, they're described as great and amazing. The only time those two words, those descriptive words are used in the Bible and they're powerful. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be beyond belief. It's going to be greater than anything that's ever happened. These seven plagues and these are the seven bowls. The seven judgments of God that are going to be poured out in rapid succession at the end of the seven years of tribulation. Seven bowls of judgment, and we're going to talk about those as we look in chapter 16 next week. But we're stepping back in time. He's seen the end. We're going backwards in time in order to see what's going to take place. And the scene shifts back to heaven. See, in chapter 14, Jesus is on earth with 144,000. Now we're stepping back and he's seeing into heaven and something's about to happen. The seven bowls of judgment. Why is that significant? Well, because these are the last of the judgments. And you remember when we ended in, um, right before Christmas, we ended with chapter 11. And then we've come back, we've done 12, 13, now 14. Those three chapters are on a side. They're a break in the action. And chapter 15 is tied directly to chapter 11. Because if you remember how chapter 11 ended, the seventh angel blew his trumpet. Now with the blow of the seventh trumpet, we knew already that there's something gonna happen. Some judgments are yet to come. The seven bold judgments are gonna come out of the seventh trumpet blast. But what did we hear? We didn't hear the news of that. We heard singing in heaven. Something else happened. There was rejoicing in heaven because the end is coming. Well, now in chapter 15, we're seeing what's going to happen. Those seven judgments. God's wrath is about to be poured out on the earth. And he saved the worst for last. And you're like, wow, really? Hadn't it been bad enough already? People dying sea turned to blood, things falling out of the sky. No, it's going to get worse because God's wrath against sin is it's building in intensity as we move across. And here's what blows my mind. When I think about the world in which we live and particularly this country, have you ever noticed how many apocalyptic movies and TV shows are out there? They're everywhere. Everything's apocalyptic anymore. It just seems like everything's about the end of the world and they're all tied to these things. Global warming, Nuclear war, somebody's dropped a bomb and destroyed the planet and there's a remnant of people trying to survive. There's been some kind of an epidemic, environmental disaster, something has happened and you've got this, these people trying to live out their lives in this demolished world. Why do we have all that? Because people know there's an end. 
they just innately know this can't go on forever. And so they try to picture what does the world look like? And they start looking at these things, terrorism, nuclear war, some kind of environmental disaster, some uh, plague. Here's what I can tell you. None of these will end this world. None of these will end this world. What's going to end this world? God. And he's going to do it himself. And he's going to do it through his son. See, Everyone fears the end of the world, but here's what they don't fear. They don't fear God. They don't fear the wrath of God. If you went up to your lost friend and said, you know what? You need to, you need to really be concerned because God's going to destroy the world one day. They'd, they'd probably laugh in your face. But if you went up to them and said, man, if we don't take care of the environment, we're going to destroy this planet. And they go, man, man, I agree. I agree. I don't want to do that. What do we need to do? See, there's this interesting thing that we don't want to give God the glory he deserves because the book tells us how it's going to end, and it's going to end by God. He's the one who's going to bring his wrath on the world, and yet the world doesn't fear God. They fear the economy. They fear one part or the other getting power, and they're going to destroy the planet. But we don't fear him. But yet we know in Psalm 96, 13, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. God will judge. Psalm 110.6, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Now, if your view of God is solely that of a loving God, and you read a verse like this, you go, this is why I don't read the Old Testament. That's not my God. Well, yeah, it is. You just have an incomplete picture of your God. So you can't have a God of love and not have a God of wrath. He's, if he's going to love one thing, he's going to hate another. He's going to despise something. He has to have both qualities. And his wrath, though, is always righteous. It's always good. Not like your wrath or my wrath. We know from Joel 3, 2, he's going to gather all the nations and he will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. God is going to judge. What do we get from chapter 14 and 15? God's going to judge, and it's going to come in a, an incredible way. And then John says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and a number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. What's going on here? Who are these people? Remember, he's looking into heaven. He's seeing something in the future, and he sees these people who have conquered the beast. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus Christ conquers the beast. I thought he's the one who defeats him. He is. So what is this talking about? And why are these people singing and why do they have harps and what's going on? And where are they? Because it says they're standing before a sea of glass. Where is that? Well, we've seen this before in chapter four, when John got a vision of heaven. It's, he described it as before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. When we studied that portion, Here's what we glean from it. Sea is a picture of God's majesty, his glory, his might. When you think of the oceans, they're huge. They cover the vast majority of this planet. They're so deep, we don't know how deep they really are. We don't know what's down there. They're the greatest unexplored area of our planet. They represent God's glory. What does the glass represent? The crystal, his holiness, his righteousness, his purity. But it says in Revelation 15... It's mixed with fire. What does fire stand for? His judgment. See, his holiness, his glory, and his judgment all come to bear at the end. 
And we see these people standing before the throne with harps and they're singing. They've conquered. Now, this guy's is, is directly tied to what we saw earlier in chapters two and three. It's the word Nikau where we get Nike. These are victorious ones. They have conquered. They have become victorious. Why are they victorious? Because they're standing in heaven. They're not on the earth anymore. They're with God. And it ties into everything Jesus said to the seven churches in chapters two and chapter three. You remember when we looked at those, and I'm gonna blow through these really quickly, but he made a comment to every one of those churches. He says, overcome, nakau, be victorious. Here's what he says. Every one of them has this challenge. Ephesus, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He says, survive, make it through, get to the end. You will be there, survive. Smyrna, the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. You will be in glory. You're not going to be cast into hell. You will spend time with him in eternity. Pergamum, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. This is the same word. He's writing to, in chapters 2 and 3, in the first century, to these literal churches. And he's telling them, conquer, make it, survive, be victorious, What's he say to Thyatira, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end? To him I will give authority over the nations. Sardis, the one who conquers, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. You're secure. You're going to be there. You're going to be standing before me someday. Philadelphia, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. What temple? The temple in the New Jerusalem. How about this one? Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. See, this word conquer is in chapters two and three, written to first century churches, and now it's come up again and we see these people in heaven and they're rejoicing. They've conquered the beast. They have not sold out to the beast. These are evidently People who've lived in the tribulation period who didn't take on the mark of the beast and therefore were able to hear the song of salvation, the message of the glory of Christ, the grace of God, and they became believers. And guess what? They also died. They were persecuted, but yet they're conquerors. They're standing in heaven. They've conquered the beast because they didn't sell out to the beast. They conquered the beast because they accepted Christ instead of the beast. They didn't worship him. They worshiped Jesus. And as a result, even though they died from martyrdom, they got to be with the Lord. See, we've seen Jesus is going to reap all those who take the mark of the beast, but we see others who didn't take the mark of the beast, and they get redeemed. They get to spend eternity. These are tribulation saints. Why is he seeing this? Why is God giving him this vision? Because he's letting him know, hey, you've just seen what I'm going to do to all those who've accepted the mark of the beast. Well, guess what? I'm still redeeming those who haven't taken that mark. I'm still allowing these individuals to come to faith. And they will be martyred, John. But guess what? They will conquer. Here's what I know. If you're in Christ, if you have accepted Jesus Christ, you may go through literal hell on earth. Bill Fuller is a believer in Jesus Christ. I know him well, known him for years. He has gone through literal hell on earth physically, emotionally. But guess what? He will stand before the Lord one day. He has not lost his salvation. He is not being punished by God. This is 
part of life on this planet in a fallen world, but he is secure. He will live. He will stand with God when I don't know. But we know in Revelation 20, you get this description. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. People will die during the tribulation for their faith. And those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. See, there's, there is a good side to these negative chapters, and it's this. There is an eternity. There is redemption for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, and we will be with them. And they're so, shown singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Well, what are we talking about? What's the song of Moses? Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that Moses led the people out of Israel. And after that happened, he wrote a song in chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. And it's a song of victory. It's a song of what God did. What did God do? He brought them out and then he led them across the dry land of the sea. And then he conquered the enemies, Pharaoh's army, and he drowned them. And Moses writes a song and it's got 21 verses in it. And the first and the last verse are bookends. Here's what he says. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Verse one, verse 21, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Now this is not the song that they're singing verbatim, but it references the song of Moses. It references the song of the lamb. What's that all about? It's about the redeeming hand of a victorious God. God is going to fix all this. And see, there's only one who can fix all this. Who is it? It's God. You can't fix it. I can't fix it. I can't, I can't vote enough people into office to fix this problem. I can't vote enough Christians into office to fix this problem. Doesn't mean I shouldn't try, but it means that only God's going to fix this. And they go on and sing, we will not fear, O Lord, or in who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And then he sees one last thing. He sees the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven open. He's looking into heaven again. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in white pure linen, golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So chapter 16, they're going to start pouring them out one after the other, rapid succession. But I want you to just notice one thing as this chapter wraps up. It says the, he looks up and the sanctuary is open. The holy of holies is open. And then in verse 8 it says, And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from its power. And no one could enter the holy of holies, the sanctuary, until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. What's going on there? He sees it open. The angels come out with the bowls. They're about to pour them out. And the door closes. The door to the holy of holies closes. What's going on? This is how chapter 11 ended. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Those are all signs of God's judgment. Chapter 11 ends that way. Chapter 15 now picks it up. The door closes to the sanctuary, and it basically tells us no more access. No more entrance into God's presence. No more mercy, because judgment has come. Think about that. The door into the sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, where God sits in all his glory, shuts. And now it's Katie bar the door. 
pouring out the wrath of God on the earth. It's not a pretty picture. It's not a happy time. So what do we do with this? Besides, go home and get drunk. (laughs) Three questions for you. Why is it so important that we listen to what Jesus said and reap now? What are the consequences for all those who are lost if we fail to reap the harvest today? What happens if you don't share the gospel with those who, who you know who are lost? If the rapture happens today, they go into the tribulation and they may or may not ever hear the gospel again. So why is it important for us to reap now? I want somebody to read 1 John 4, 2 through 4, which talks about the spirit of the Antichrist. In what ways are we to conquer the spirit of the Antichrist that's alive and well today? Is the spirit of the Antichrist, deception, delusion, evil, alive and well today? Read the newspaper. Yes. How do we conquer that spirit right now? See, you can avoid it. You can not read the newspaper. You can stop watching the news, but it doesn't make it go away. How do we defeat that? How do we live with that? And then finally, Moses saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. I want you to take just a minute, each one of you around the table to share a song of glory to God for something he's done in your life. And some of you are going to have to go, man, what's he done? And I prefer that you not go back to your salvation experience. I love the fact that you're saved, but that's the, if that's the last thing he did for you, I'm not sure you are saved. If you don't have something from last week that God did and you can praise him and give him glory, there's something wrong with that picture. See, we should be singing songs of glory to God every day of our lives, things that he's done for us, things that he has accomplished in our lives that we couldn't have done. And here's what's really sad to me is that we rarely sing that song to one another. We complain, but we don't give him glory and go, Man, he healed me. He fixed my marriage. He's given me good health. He's, he's done X, Y, Z. And I'd love for you. If you do none of these, do the third one. And let's give God glory because he deserves it. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for the fact that you were in control. Thank you, Father, that in spite of all the negativity that we seem to see in this book, there's good news in this book because there is redemption through Jesus Christ. There is a way for people to be made right with a holy God. But if we don't tell them, they'll never know. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me to be more bold in my faith, that these men would would gut it up and speak out and say what needs to be said, even if they get rejected, because people need to hear. So, Father, give us boldness, give us strength, give us focus, help us to understand that we're on this planet not to make money, not to build houses, not to drive nice cars, not to take great vacations. Those are all just signs of the grace of God. We're here to share the gospel and to live out Christ's likeness in the midst of a very dark and dying world. Lord, we love you and we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.